Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you could tune in today. This topic that we're going to be covering today is something that we've touched on in years past, but there's been a recent development that's very exciting. Um, We've talked about the use of antibiotics in livestock and hence the meat that we eat and some of the health impacts and some of the impacts uh, to the environment that is going on as a result of this low-level antibiotic use in livestock that's used for meat. And just recently, McDonald's has announced that they are going to commit to serve chicken raised without antibiotics used in human medicines in all of their U.S. restaurants within two years. And that's a big deal. And that didn't just happen all on its own, all because McDonald's thought so. A lot of what happened to lead up to that announcement started with advocacy and research groups like the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC. And we have a representative from the NRDC here with us today to talk about this issue, talk about some of the work that they've been doing. Our guest today is Sasha Stoshwick, and she's a senior advocate with the NRDC's Energy and Transportation and Food and Agricultural Programs. And before she came came to NRDC. She was an analyst at Goldman Sachs, and she's also worked at uh, the United States embassies in London and Paris. She has a fascinating background, and so I'm so excited to have her on this show. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Sasha. Thanks, Jill. It's uh, so great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on, and I want to get right to it. Um, In a March 4th, 2015 press release from the NRDC, the point was made that McDonald's is committing to serve chicken, and I quote, without antibiotics used in human medicine. But the language in their global vision statement doesn't include a ban on the use of all medically important antibiotics. And I'd like for you to help us understand the difference in that terminology. Yeah, thanks for that question, Jill. I think it can get kind of technical and confusing sometimes, so it's good to kind of step back and just review exactly what McDonald's said when it made its March 4th announcement. So there were really two things that McDonald's um, announced on, on that day. The first, as you mentioned, was a commitment just in the United States and just on chicken. And what they said was that across all of the chicken that they serve in their 14,000-some-odd restaurants in the U.S., they were going to phase out the use of antibiotics important in human medicine within two years. So those are the antibiotics that you and I would rely on if we had an infection and we went to our doctor. They're the antibiotics that people use when we get sick. Um, What that doesn't include is a category of um, antibiotics called ionophores. Uh, they're, they're technically classified as antibiotics in the United States, but they're not actually used in human medicine. So they're not um, linked to developing you know, um, antibiotic resistance in, in the same way. So mm-hmm. basically, uh, McDonald's is saying no more drugs that we use in human medicine in our chicken ever within the next two years in the U.S. And that's a really meaningful commitment from our perspective, you know, for public health. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, they released this global vision for antibiotic stewardship across all of their meat supply chains across all of the world. And the way they described that to us was that this is a framework document 
and that their various business units all around the world are then going to, you know, huddle up and come up with uh, more concrete plans um, on their antibiotics use in line with that global vision. So that's all well and good. I, you know, that, that's a good process. But the problem was that in that global vision, there isn't um, sort of a foolproof ban on using medically important antibiotics in raising, you know, the cows, the, pick- the, the, the chickens, the pigs, the, you know, that, that end up in their, in their restaurants. Mm-hmm. And there is still this major loophole in that global vision that where, you know, we remain concerned about. And so our message to McDonald's is, you know, great job on chicken in the U.S., um, but there's more work to be done on, you know, your other meats um, all around the world. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I mean, they they are so influential, even though, you know, they've had image problems ever since supersize me and the pink slime thing. I mean, you know, their buying power is maybe only one or two percent at tops of the meat in the world. But, um, you know, they, they that's still a significant um, push. Oh, if they're, yeah, if they're able to move their suppliers in that uh, space, then that's going to have a ripple effect. That's pretty exciting, actually. I'd like for you to give us a little bit of a history lesson because, of course, we know you know antibiotics haven't always been used in livestock feed. So, why did ranchers start using antibiotics in livestock feed and water to begin with? Great question. I think it's kind of you know people. Once they learn about this issue, they, they, they start to wonder, you know, how did we even get to this place where, you know, exactly. 80% of the antibiotics that are sold in the United States, they don't go to human medicine. They go to the livestock industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that didn't just come about out of nowhere. You know, um, that happened over time. And, and, and really, you know, back around the 1950s, um, farmers and ranchers discovered that if they fed low doses of antibiotics to animals, the animals put on weight more quickly. So they got, you know, fatter faster, they got to their slaughter weight faster. And that, of course, decreased the amount of feed and other costs associated with raising those animals. So it was, you know, an efficiency um, uh, sort of an innovation, I guess, at the time. And so it, it over time, it became um, absolutely, you know, commonplace and routine in the conventional livestock industry to be feeding low doses of antibiotics to animals in their feed and water. And as the industry has changed over the last, you know, five, six decades, we've seen a tremendous amount of consolidation. So there's been, you know, an extreme reduction in the number of farms and at the same time a massive increase in the number of animals per farm. So you have, you know, really, really intense, you know, consolidation and confinement of animals. You, you know, you often have hundreds, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of animals now that are um, confined together indoors in what are called um, confined animal feeding operations. Some of your listeners may have heard this term CAFO. It's the acronym mm-hmm. that's used in the industry. And so in addition to promoting growth, the antibiotics are, you know, fed to the animals prophylactically. Basically, these animals are, they're crowded, they're often stressed, um, they're often in unsanitary conditions, conditions that 
are very likely to breed disease. And so the animals are under so much disease pressure, they're, they're so likely to get sick in those conditions that the antibiotics are also used for something the industry calls disease prevention. So they're used you know, prophylactically to keep the animals from getting sick, to help them survive in those conditions. And I mm-hmm. sometimes joke that it's, you know, it's, it, it's as if we, we, we would give our children antibiotics in their morning cereal just because they're going off to school and they're at risk of getting sick. That's obviously not the way that antibiotics are meant to be used. Right. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it's, it, that's the way that they're being used in this industry, you know, across, you know, many, many farms, millions and millions of animals. Right. Now, when I see companies like McDonald's, and I've seen others, we'll talk about some of those case studies in a moment, but when I say that or see that they are going to work with their suppliers to eliminate some or all of the antibiotic use, what I'm not seeing, and maybe it's just because they don't want to highlight some of the, you know, pockmarks of the meat industry, but I don't see language paired with any remarks about what the ranchers will do differently to ensure that disease doesn't spread throughout their livestock. Are you confident that the hatcheries and ranches that are eliminating antibiotics are simultaneously cleaning up their operations? Well, I think what we're saying is that antibiotics should not be used as a crutch for better management practices. And, you know, there are many, many farmers and ranchers across the country and across the world that show us every day that you can raise animals and keep them healthy without daily doses of these drugs. And so what it really involves, you know, are, is better management. You know, in, in, in chicken operations, there's lots of different things that producers can do, anything from using vaccines and probiotics to improve the gut health of the chickens to giving the birds a little bit more space, making sure the barns are, are cleaner, um, things like that. And so, you know, at NRDC, we're, we're sort of not, we're not prescriptive about the specific changes. That's going to be up to each individual producer. But, you know, we have, we have just have so many examples now of producers, not just small niche producers, but big, you know, vertically integrated producers that are raising chickens at scale that are able to to do so without, you know, needing to rely on this routine use of antibiotics. Help us understand why McDonald's chose chicken for its foray into antibiotic-free meat. Are there market conditions that are different for chicken as opposed opposed to beef or pork? I mean, um, why won't my Big Mac be antibiotic-free? What was was the reasoning for chicken? Yeah, I hope you, I hope your Big Mac is antibiotic-free soon too. But um, that's a really good question. Why did McDonald's start with chicken? And I'm actually speaking to you right now from uh, Chicago, and McDonald's is headquartered not far from here. And you know, a couple of years ago, I actually got on a plane from New York and I flew out here to speak with um, with folks from from McDonald's about this very issue. Um, it was you know January 2013, I believe, and that was the first time we sat down and we met with McDonald's in person. And at that meeting, we actually said, you know, if you guys want to be leaders on this issue, chicken is a really good place to start. And there are a few reasons for that. Um, The first is that, you know, chickens just live shorter lives than, you know, beef cattle, for example. You know, I think it's sort of obvious. And so um, it's easier to make management changes in between the different flocks in in a given operation. But, you know, uh, that's sort of, you know, that's one of the reasons, but a key reason is that of all the different segments of the livestock industry, 
chicken is the most vertically integrated. You have just a handful of large producers that really control the entirety of their supply chain. And so they're really able to, you know, reach down through their supply chain and, and, and have a tremendous amount of power over, you know, practices at the farm level. And McDonald's, as a very large buyer of chicken, I think, you know, you can imagine how big of a beef buyer McDonald's is. They buy mm-hmm. even more chicken. So they're yeah. just, you know, one of if not the largest, one of the largest buyers of chicken in the country. Well, and, and I've also a read, lot of, too, it, it isn't the, the price of, of traditionally farmed chicken and antibiotic-free chicken closer in price um, than perhaps the disparity between those types of meats in beef or pork? That, that's correct. So, yeah, there's a lot of evidence to show that antibiotic-free chicken can be purchased at a price point that's really close to conventional chicken. And I think that, that that's, another, that's a very good point. It's another reason why focusing on chicken first is a good idea because um, you can make these changes. There's a lot of evidence now to suggest that you can make these changes in the chicken industry without, you know, completely upending the model or, you know, the economics of, of a given operation. And, and, and of all the different meats... Um, I think in chicken, there is already a lot of this alternative product in the market. We tend to see antibiotic-free chicken a lot more readily available today. So in terms of having the supply available to them in the market, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good place to start. And mm-hmm. McDonald's, I mean, it's, it's just sort of an interesting thing to think about. A lot of other restaurants will only buy one part of the, of the bird. You know, they'll, they'll serve wings or they'll serve just the chicken breast. Mm-hmm. McDonald's, when it buys chicken, it buys the entire chicken every time. Mm-hmm. And so that means they, as a large buyer in the marketplace, have a lot of leverage. They have a lot of you know, purchasing power and a lot of uh, uh, ability to dictate production practices. I see. So, yeah. I, I see. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but don't go away, folks. We've got much more with Sasha, much more to talk about right after this quick commercial break. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. 
Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. We are talking about a major announcement that just came out recently where McDonald's is committing to serving chicken in all of its U.S. restaurants using far less antibiotics, using no antibiotics that are used in human medicines. And our guest today is from the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, Sasha Stoshwick. And she has been talking to us about some of the work that their organization, NRDC, has done in collaboration with McDonald's to make this happen. Um, Sasha, is McDonald's, in conjunction with making this announcement, are they making any commitments to have a more transparent supply chain? So I don't know of any specific commitments um, to transparency. From, from our perspective, we would love to see McDonald's reporting on their progress towards their goal. So they have this public goal of you know, eliminating medically important antibiotics in their chicken supply chains within two years across all their restaurants in the U.S. And that's not going to happen overnight. And I think it would be uh, great if they reported their progress towards that goal over the next two years. I don't know of any specific commitments to do that. But, you know, one other aspect of transparency that we think is really important is verification Mm -hmm. of these claims, you know, of these commitments. And, you know, that has to come from a third party. We can't just take McDonald's word for it. Uh, In order to be credible in the marketplace, they're going to have to, you know, have these changes at the farm level verified by by a third party. And my understanding is that they're going to be working with the USDA's process verified program in order order to do that. And, um, you know, it's still not 100% clear to me what the details of that will be, but it should involve – you know, auditing at the actual farm level, periodic auditing at the farm level to make sure that production practices, you know, at the farms that are producing the chicken that McDonald's serves in this restaurant, that they're actually implementing the practices that McDonald's has announced in this new standard. That's a really important piece, in my view, to to the credibility of this commitment and, and, and the transparency. Well, and we'll talk about this in more detail in a, in a little bit, but, you know, from my own perspective, when you talk about the USDA, you're talking about government and a, and a regulatory body, and that is great. There is a role for that. But what I'd love to see is what you're seeing on other products, which are third-party verifications and labels that certify a bit more rigor than what a regulatory agency can provide. For instance, like with paper products that are FSC certified and uh, Mm -hmm. Rainforest Alliance certified, I'd love to see 
something along those lines in the food industry. But we'll get to that. Um, I'd like to just back up just for a little bit and make sure all that our listeners are aware of the facts concerning antibiotic use in livestock livestock and why it's such an important issue. And and I'm pretty sure that we've all heard news stories about tragic deaths as a result of superbugs that were antibiotic resistant, but I'm not sure that everybody has made the connection between those stories and the use of antibiotics in livestock feed. And I'm, I'd like for you to kind of close that gap for us. Help us connect the dots. Yeah, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to do so because we sort of launch into this conversation sometimes and it's good to step back and ask, why do we even care what McDonald's right. does in terms of its, you know, its antibiotics use uh, for its meat? And the reason we care is because I think, you know, you know, you, your listeners, most of us have had the experience of getting sick with an infection. We go to our doctor. The doctor prescribes us an antibiotic, and he or she will admonish us to finish our course of antibiotics, quote unquote. So to take all of the pills that. Uh, he or she prescribed. And the reason that doctors do that is because every time we use an antibiotic, we risk breeding resistance to it. So it's really important that we take our entire dosage so that all of the, the bacteria get killed off. So we're, we're, we're sort of used to that in our own lives and, you know, in our own interactions with our doctors. What we have in the livestock industry is effectively millions of animals every day that are not finishing their course. So they're being given low doses of antibiotics in their feed, in their water, on a routine basis. And what happens is that the weak bacteria are killed off, but the strong bacteria survive and they breed, they proliferate, and they actually develop resistance to these antibiotics. And these bacteria, they don't just stay on the farm. They, they escape these livestock facilities in a number of ways. They can get out on the, in the soil, in water. Uh, they colonize the workers very frequently. The workers then you know, bring that bacteria back to their communities and you know, their, their families. The bacteria are, are on the meat itself. And this is kind of creepy, but the bacteria actually can transfer their antibiotic-resistant genetics to each other. So a, resist, a resistant bacteria can teach a regular, a regular bacteria how to be resistant. It can sort of trade its, its, its genetics with it. So in all these ways, these antibiotic-resistant superbugs are escaping these facilities. They're getting into our communities and they risk making people sick. Uh, you know, this isn't just me saying this, you know, our, our leading institutions of medicine and public health, the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, they all have warned, they've all sounded the alarm about this misuse and overuse of antibiotics in livestock as one of the main contributors to this public health crisis of antibiotic resistance. We have, you know, 2 million people getting antibiotic resistant infections a year, 23,000 deaths a year from antibiotic resistant infections. This is now a major public health crisis, and our misuse of antibiotics in human medicine is definitely contributing. It is definitely part of the problem, but when you have 80% of the antibiotics sold in the U.S. going to the livestock industry, we know that we can't solve this problem unless we tackle you know, antibiotic stewardship both in human medicine and in the livestock industry. We really have to tackle it on both sides of the equation. You know, in this country, we see 
technology growing and, you know, innovations around us every day. And science is almost a religion in this country, and Americans love that. Um, There's so many advances going on in communication and, and everything. And I think that you know, some people think, well, we can just innovate our way out of anything. Uh, you know, the science will save us. And so I'm wondering, you know, is medical science able to keep up with this superbug phenomenon? Are we developing new cures? What are the facts? Um, are there new and improved antibiotics on the way or no? Yeah, so I, I almost wish we were on TV right now because I could sort of show you the, the graph. It's a pretty stark picture. It, you, you can imagine a a line in a graph just showing antibiotic resistance on the rise over time. And at the same time, our pipeline of new antibiotics just completely plummeting, but, you know, a line going down in the opposite direction. So while, while we have this public health crisis emerging, more and more antibiotic resistance, we are not, to answer your question, we're not developing new antibiotics uh, quickly enough. So, you know, we're really facing the prospect of a post-antibiotic era, you know, an era in which basic infections could once again kill. I think, I think we all probably in grade school learned about the invention of penicillin. And, you know, before the invention of penicillin, you know, a lot of people would, would get very sick and even die from very basic infections. And, and antibiotics were really this miracle drug that was developed. And now we're really at a point where, we are threatening the effectiveness of this miracle drug that makes so much of modern medicine possible when you think about, you know, surgeries, cesarean section births, you know, so much of what we rely on in modern medicine relies on having effective antibiotics. And, you know, we're, we're really putting that, we're really putting these miracle drugs uh, at, at risk right now. Mm-hmm. In a blog that you posted in December of last year, and we've talked about this earlier in the show, you noted that 80% of antibiotics used in America are given to farm animals. Um, won't big pharmaceutical companies lose a lot of money if the nation transitions to meat raised without antibiotics? I mean, they're pretty influential. What is their take on this movement? Yeah, so you have to admit, you have to imagine that they, you know, they have a stake in this, and that you know one of the reasons that we haven't seen effective regulations of drug use in this industry is because the pharmaceutical industry is so powerful. You kind of have, you know, both you know big conventional agricultural interests and big pharmaceutical interests lined up against, you know taking effective action uh, mm-hmm. to solve this problem. So, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a huge problem, I think, in, 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 in this space. But at the same time, the pharmaceutical industries, you know, they also have a stake in, in many of the solutions. You know, they're the ones that are going to be coming up with the vaccines and, and other alternatives to the antibiotics. So, you know, they're, for the forward-looking companies, I think that there are also opportunities for them um, to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. One of your colleagues at NRDC, who's been on Go Green Radio before, Jonathan Kaplan, um, posted a blog in February of this year in which he notes that so little information about antibiotic use in the livestock industry is made public. And I'm wondering, why is that so? I mean, is that legally protected information or is it simply that no one's asking? Oh, people are asking. This is, this, is a, this is a good question. It's one of the main problems. We're definitely asking for this information, and one of the biggest problems is that this industry is not required to disclose its drug use. So 
we don't really know, you know, for any given operation producer sector of the industry, we don't necessarily know, you know, how, how much, how you know, many drugs they're using for what purposes and what quantities. We, it's really a black box. They're, they're not required to be transparent about their drug use. And so, you know, for, in our efforts to uh, improve the laws and regulations in this industry, that's definitely one of the things that we emphasize. We simply need to have transparency. We need to have better data. Uh, this industry has to be required to report more information about, about its drug use. But right now, uh, it's, 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 really, it's really quite a black box. Is there anybody, you know, anyone in an elected capacity pushing for this? I mean, you just never hear about it in campaigns. Well, there is. Uh, we have some, you know, some some champions of this issue um, in in our Congress. Certainly, uh, Representative Louise Slaughter comes to mind. She's the only microbiologist in mm. in our Congress, and for years now, she's been. You know, fighting this fight and introducing legislation that would uh, that would really tackle this issue. Her her legislation would would ban the inappropriate, dangerous uses of antibiotics in this industry. You know, it, it would say that livestock producers could no longer use these drugs in, in in these routine ways that that we know are associated with breeding antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Um, you know, with the way things are right now, I, I, I can't see us being able to rely on the Congress to solve this problem. <laughs> and I think uh, to a large degree, that's why so many advocates have turned their attention to the marketplace, to right. encouraging this sort of consumer-driven trend around this issue and, you know, encouraging and pushing big companies like McDonald's to, mm-hmm. to make these types of commitments. Very understandable. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but there's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, I'll catch you up. Our guest today is from the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, Sasha Stoshwick, and she is talking about um, this topic that we've covered, you know, it's been a couple of years, I think, but it's um, about the use of antibiotics in livestock feed and water and, and some of the measures being taken on the on the market side and the consumer side to help put pressure on companies to get rid of that kind of practice. And so one of the things that um, you mentioned in a recent blog post, Sasha, is the fact that the Urban School Food Alliance um, is taking measures to address giving antibiotic-free meat to their students. And what I'd like for you to do, because until I read about them in your blog post, I didn't know about the Urban School Food Alliance. So if you would, um, talk to us about that organization, the action that they took, and the magnitude of their reach, how many students are under their umbrella. Sure. So the Urban School Food Alliance uh, is an alliance of the largest uh, public school districts in the country. So it includes... New York, Los Angeles, Miami, Dallas, Chicago. And what they have decided to do is pool their purchasing power and begin to go out to the marketplace and buy antibiotic-free chicken in unison. So one fact that my, my colleagues who work with the New York City Public Schools like to throw out is that the, the institution in the U.S. that feeds the largest number of people every day is the Department of Defense. In second place is New York City Public Schools. Wow. So they have a tremendous number of meals that they serve, a tremendous number of children that they feed. And you can just imagine they are pooling their purchasing power with you know, the next handful of largest school districts in the country. So it's really a great idea. NRDC has been serving as an advisor to them in this effort. And what they announced last year was that they are going to be putting out bids to the marketplace um, for uh, – fresh antibiotic-free chicken. And what I love about this announcement, it's almost like the, the other side of the coin to the McDonald's announcement, is just how mainstream something like this could be for this market. Uh, you know, school food programs don't have a lot of money to throw around. You know, they, they can't afford to pay big markups on the products that they purchase. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, there's almost nothing more mainstreaming in this industry than something like these school districts coming in and saying, you know, we want these, this chicken for, we want this healthier, more responsibly raised chicken for the children in our schools. And similarly, I think the McDonald's announcement really, um, really, you know, pushes in that same direction. It's just such a mainstreaming force in this market. We don't want this product to just be a niche product that is available to just a small elite set of consumers. We want to raise the floor across the entire chicken industry so that this becomes, you know, 
standard practice, and antibiotic-free production becomes standard practice across this industry, and it's a product that is affordable and available to all consumers. And I, and I think that the, you know, the Urban School Food Alliance announcement, the McDonald's announcement, you know, Chick-fil-A is now also going to be buying into antibiotic-free chicken. These are all indicative of how mainstream this product is becoming, um, and that we're, you know, we're, we're potentially really close or at the tipping point for for the chicken industry. And so um, I've just been really excited. I think like the last six months to a year has just been a time of great momentum. Well, you know, on that subject of affordability, you know, I I read a report that you uh, penned for the NRDC um, called Going Mainstream, Meat and Poultry Raised Without Antibiotics. And there's a section in the report that says, you know, that consumers care about this issue and they're willing to pay a premium. And the first thing that went through my mind when I read that, that polling data was where was that taken? Because, you know, if you poll people in Marin County in California or the Upper West Side in Manhattan, of course, they would pay a premium because they can. But if you polled consumers in, you know, less affluent urban areas, um, in the Rust Belt, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, they may wish that they could pay a premium for that product, but they may not be able to. And so from a social and environmental justice standpoint, what is the path that would lead us to where, from where we are now to where, you know, antibiotic free meat, not just chicken, but all meat is affordable and available to everyone. So I do think we have a, a, a ways to go before, you know, antibiotic free meat across the board is available, you know, to, to all consumers. You know, but one of the things that we have highlighted in this report is that while antibiotic-free meat remains a small segment of the marketplace today, it's growing at an incredibly fast rate. So a couple of years ago, it was reported that uh, it might be starting from a base of about you know, 2% of total meat sales, but it's growing at 25% per year. So really small base, but really rapid growth. And as we see more of the supply come into the marketplace. Our, our hope is that, you know, prices begin to come down. Right, right now, the situation you have is, you know, you walk into your grocery store and you have aisles of conventional chicken and other meats, and then you might have one case over to the side with, the, you know, the rarefied kind of mm-hmm. organic and antibiotic-free products. And oftentimes the price on those products, it doesn't necessarily reflect the increased cost to produce those products it just reflects the markup that that specific market will bear. So in any given consumer Mm -hmm. market, I think stores are able to mark that product up because it is still this niche product, this luxury product. And if the consumers in that market are willing to pay it, you know, it it sells. And what we're trying to do is really, again, you know, raise the floor across the industry so that this becomes the the new normal. And, and, And our hope is that as more of this product comes into the market, prices will come down. On chicken, there's a lot of evidence now to suggest that it costs just a couple of pennies per pound more to raise chickens without this, you know, routine reliance on antibiotics. And in fact, Consumers Union, um, you know, they went out and they surveyed prices across grocery stores in all different parts of the country. And they found that antibiotic-free chicken was already being sold at prices that were comparable to conventional chicken. So, 
Um, I, I think it, it certainly takes time, but you know what what we're after is something that is you know healthy and affordable for for most Americans, not just some. Well, and if you look at the way the market works, the greater the supply of this product, um, you know, the, the, the greater competition on pricing there will be. So I think, you know, if you can get big purchasers to buy more and push suppliers to create more of this product, then that will create some competition for those who are marking it up at a premium. I can imagine, though, that a lot of ranchers are worried about transitioning from doing things the way they always have for years and years, generations, um, to a new system where antibiotics are only used for sick animals. But your report indicates that experts predict that the transition costs will be low. And I'd love for you to tell us more about your findings there. Yeah, so we actually had um, our in-house uh, economist uh, do um, a report on specifically on the chicken industry, and one of the things she looked at were were costs. Not surprisingly, and again, you know, she did a thorough literature review, and 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 what she found was that um, there's a lot of evidence to indicate that it's you know it's it, it's it's a couple of pennies per pound to make this change, and you know that's sort of the that's the literature, but I I spend a lot of my time talking with the companies that have already made this change. They've already gone out and built out these supply chains. So these are the, uh, the Chipotle's of the world, the Panera Bread's of the world. And, you know, while they're, they're not going to disclose their margins to me, uh, you know, they will tell you that, you know, a, a couple of pennies per pound sounds about right. And so I think, you know, particularly, you know, in, again, in, in the chicken industry, there's just a lot of evidence and a lot of experience now to show that, transition costs will be low. We now have, as of last year, one of the top three chicken producers in the country, Purdue Farms, saying that it is already raising 95% of its chicken without reliance on these medically important antibiotics. So this isn't some, you know, small niche operation. This is a major vertically integrated poultry giant mm-hmm. that is saying that they're already doing this. So in terms of, you know, the, the producers worrying about this transition, I, I, I don't want to ever suggest that, you know, it's simple or it can be done overnight. But what we have now are just so many examples of successful transitions that I think it's clearer and clearer to the industry that, you know, this is where things are going and, you know, the largest producers are either already there or making plans to get there. One of the companies that you highlighted in your report is Applegate. And you mentioned that one of their success strategies is to more fully utilize the whole animal versus simply using the prime cuts. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think this is kind of a fascinating aspect of how... Uh, this industry works. When producers raise animals antibiotic-free, typically their costs are a bit higher, as we've been discussing, and so it's really important for them to be able to sell all parts of the animal at a little bit of a premium so they can recoup their their cost. But oftentimes, you know, they'll have buyers for, you know, just the chicken breast or, you know, just the chicken wings, you know, some, some, some part, some one part of the animal, and they have to go out and actually find buyers for the other parts. So it's, it's, it's pretty important to have 
buyers in the marketplace that are going to buy the whole animal, you know, or, or, you know, some combination of buyers so that producers know that they have a reliable market to sell their product. And I think that, you know, Applegate has been really insightful, you know, on, on this point there, you know, their, their, their CEO speaks very, very thoughtfully um, on this point. And I think his vision is to really create um, a whole suite of products um, in the Applegate branded line where they can be, you know, wholly utilizing the animals that are raised antibiotic free for them. So it's just an interesting, interesting thing to kind of think about when you start thinking about how the transition in this industry has to happen. Um, we really need markets for, you know, all parts of these animals. If they're, mm-hmm. if, if they're being raised, you know, antibiotic free more responsibly, um, we really want to make sure that we can reward the producer for that work. Um, well, and, and, and last week on yeah. Go Green Radio, we had um, the folks from the, the new food business school who are teaching chefs to create delicious dishes that do exactly that. Um, the Culinary Institute of America is starting to yep. um, encourage chefs to use the whole animal. So I think, um, you know, we've got the two parts <laughs> coming together. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, there's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Sasha, 
in this NRDC report that, that you wrote called Going Mainstream, Meat and Poultry Raised Without Antibiotics, um, you mentioned Chipotle as a really great case study in um, going to antibiotic-free meat in their restaurant chain. Talk to us about what they've done. Give us some idea of how much antibiotic-free meat they're buying and the significance of their buying power. Yeah, so, you know, in this report, we were just trying to make some, I think, very basic points, you know, just that this is a very consumer-driven trend. Consumers really care about this issue and that big mainstream companies that we've all heard of are responding to increased consumer demand for antibiotic-free meat. They're marketing their antibiotic-free sourcing practices to consumers, and they are being rewarded by, by these consumers. They're seeing tremendous financial success. Um, you know, doing this. And Chipotle, I think, is, you know, sometimes, you know, most associated in people's minds with, with this trend. You know, Chipotle, along with companies like Panera, they were, they were pioneers in this, um, uh, to, to a large degree. You know, over a decade ago, they went out and they started building out these, these supply chains at a time when there really wasn't a lot of antibiotic-free meat necessarily, you know, available in, in the marketplace. And, you know, Chipotle, obviously, um, you know, tremendously successful company, growing rapidly. Um, and, you know, as of 2013, they reported to us that they were buying 140 million pounds of antibiotic-free meat every year. It, it's probably wow. even more um, today, though I, I don't have the number, you know, at, at my fingertips. And, you know, I think that... The, the 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 key thing to understand is you know just how how much this sourcing has helped this sort of new cohort of companies break away from the traditional fast food pack you know you have now Chipotle Panera Shake Shack Carl's Jr announced that it has an antibiotic free uh, burger uh, you know Chick Fil A made this announcement there there's all these companies that are, you know, catering specifically to consumers that care about how the meat and poultry that ends up on their plate is raised. Uh, companies like Chipotle are putting this information front and center in their, in their marketing, and they're seeing a tremendous amount of success. Um, it's, it's, it's the kind of success that, tr- that, that the traditional fast food industry, I think, can only envy. And I have to think that you can draw a straight line uh, from, you know, Chipotle's success and the success of these other companies to the recent McDonald's announcement, just to sort of bring mm-hmm. things full circle. You know, it's, it's, it, it strikes me that McDonald's has to have noticed that, you know, these other companies are just enjoying, you know, sales and revenues that, you know, far outpace, you know, mm-hmm. the, their own. You know, it's been, it's been reported, you know, that, you know, a lot of financial analysts have been worrying about, you know, the future of McDonald's and the traditional fast food players. And I think that maybe they're finally recognizing that, um, and, you know, they can, they can begin to compete better in the marketplace by offering more sustainable, healthier options to their customers. And I think, you know, the Chipotle has really led the way on that. Give us some specific examples about the way in which Chipotle communicates to its consumers um, how it is purchasing food, what its food purchasing policies are, what, it, what do they actually do to communicate that effectively to their consumers? 
Well, I think they just, you know, they put it front and center on their website, on their menus, um, inside their restaurants. I think that they try and create a connection between the farmers that are producing the meat that they serve um, and the customers that are, you know, buying it and eating it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't necessarily list, you know, lots of specific examples, but I know that, you know, they, they, they have tried to put a name and a face on, you know, the farmer that mm-hmm. is, you know, raising the, you know, the, the animals that, that, that end up in their products so that, you know, customers can, you know, sort of make that connection. And I think that through doing that, you know, Chipotle has built a lot of trust and a lot of loyalty, you know, especially amongst, you know, that, that set of millennial consumers, sort of, you know, consumers between the ages of 18 and 34 that are really driving um, so, so much of, of, of this industry right now. I think, um, you know, having that, that, that transparency and providing that information to people about where their food is coming from, I think more and more it builds, you know, real trust and loyalty uh, with, with the company. Mm-hmm. I really liked Panera Bread's uh, story, particularly the part when you highlighted that at the time they decided to use antibiotic-free chicken, there were not many suppliers raising chickens without antibiotics. And that required them to actively assist, not just demand, but actually assist um, their supply chain in building this, uh, you know, this product and the supplier network to support their vision. I'm wondering, have they published anything on how they did that? I mean, are any of these companies who are pursuing this path of antibiotic-free meat providing any kind of roadmap or a checklist that other companies can follow? Not to my knowledge, but I think it is a really good point that as these companies have grown, as these buyers of meat have grown and expanded their number of restaurants, they have pulled along with them these antibiotic-free producers. So as, you know, their demand has grown, the, their, their suppliers have been able to expand their own operations. And I love that part of the story, too. Um, I think it's really, um, it's really key. It's really a, a big part of how this market has grown over the last decade-plus. And one other part of, of Panera's story that I just want to highlight, because, you know, we're really focused on you know, the, the public health aspects, and we're focused on the animal welfare aspects a lot of the time. But what Panera will tell you is that when they made this decision, they made it because antibiotic-free chicken, chicken that was raised, you know, without this routine reliance on these drugs, it just tasted better. They'll tell you that mm-hmm. over and over mm-hmm. again, that they, they tasted it, it tasted better to them, and they said, we have to have this. So, you know, it's not, you know, just uh, sort of, you know, uh, I mean, I... I it, I don't know if their motives were altruistic or not, sort of not the point. The point was that they decided it was a better, higher quality product that they wanted mm-hmm. their customers to have, and their customers have rewarded them. Um, you know, they'll tell you that the, the items on their menu that feature antibiotic-free chicken became, you know, the most popular items on their menu. So mm-hmm. it's sort of, you know, I think that's, that's sort of an important part of the story that, you know, a lot of times this you know, the, these, these restaurants will tell you that this meat is just better. It tastes better. Mm-hmm. I'm really hoping that, you know, there's somebody out there who's creating, uh, you know, the playbook for this. There's no reason for other food industry professionals to have to keep recreating the wheel when it comes to creating a supply chain that creates this product. And I really hope whether it's, you know, a third-party organization like UL Environment or, you know, somebody creates the auditable, you know, 
checklist for companies who want to enter into this kind of a supply chain scenario. We've got about a minute left, Sasha, and I'd like for you to speak to everyday Americans who are breathless right now. They're tired. They're exhausted uh, from working hard every day and going into the grocery store bleary-eyed, trying to provide good food for their families. How do those everyday Americans engage in this movement without just wearing themselves out? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, again, you know, our goal is to, you know, make this the standard for the industry. I don't, I I hate to put all the responsibility at the feet of consumers. You know, your average consumer is busy. They can't be an expert on this issue. They can't go to the grocery store with their lawyers and their scientists to evaluate all the different claims and the different products. It's really, there's a lot of noise there. And, you know, so our, our hope, again, is that, you know, we are at a tipping point for this industry where the majority of the chicken available to consumers is antibiotic-free, so consumers can go into the grocery mm-hmm. store and they just won't have bad choices. Well, In the meantime, I just, I just encourage <laughs> I, I, people to ask the question, you know, ask, ask, ask your grocery store, ask your restaurants, where does your chicken come from? You know, absolutely. I want antibiotic-free chicken. Well, thank you for what you do, Sasha, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.